Um, those of you, of you in here who are teaching, I'm just going to warn you, you you're going to get a couple more weeks off probably. Um, this is going to extend into May. So um, anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we begin this morning. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you this morning. We look out and see um, a different kind of sky than we've been seeing here for the last few weeks. We see sun, we see blue sky, and we're grateful for that, Lord. And we're reminded of your creative power and your ability. And so this morning, as we consider the glories of the gospel and consider what it is that you do and what you accomplish, I pray that you would guide our thinking. Um, we understand as we come to this that we cannot know your mind completely. And, and so at times, to, in our attempt to know your mind, we, we try to dumb it down. And yeah, the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, but it is, it is the glory of God, as we're just going to see here in just a few minutes. And so it's impossible for us to fully comprehend all the intricacies, all the, all the glories, all the majesty of the gospel. So I pray that you would give this morning to us a, a big view of who you are and a big view of what the gospel is, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with where I was just talking about there in my prayer. In, in looking at the gospel and understanding the gospel, I think there is this, there is this desire, and rightfully so, to, to make the gospel understandable. That's a good thing, right? To make the gospel understandable. But in doing so, I think at times we, what we have done with it is we have, we have cut it down and pared it down so much to make it understandable that, that we have, in a way, we have robbed God from his glory in the gospel. And, and, and that's a concern to me. And, and I'll put it to you this way. I think we all have this desire to understand the gospel, to make it understandable, and, and there are certain aspects to the gospel that if you say you completely understand them, I'm like, I'm not sure you really do. Because, because we're going to talk later on today, it's clear in the scriptures that God elects and God chooses and God predestines, but it's also clear in the scriptures that he says, whosoever will may come. Now, if you think about both of those and you try to line them up, that, that's something that's hard to line up. And if you think you have the solution to that, I'm pretty sure that you don't understand what both of those things are saying. Because the truth of the matter is, when God said whosoever will, did he mean what he said? The truth of the matter is when God says, when the word says that God chose, did he really choose? In our limited, finite thinking, do those two things make sense? They don't, completely. And I don't think that should bother us in this way. It ought to point us to a God who is far greater and far wiser than we are. And, and, we ought, and we ought to be kind of awed by the greatness of God in this. If your system of theology is, is so understandable and, and you've got it and, and you think you know it backwards and forwards, then you are limiting who God is. I'm just going to put it that way. There, there are things, the scripture even says, who can know the mind of God in certain things? And so one of the things that happens is, 
And when we talk about some of these terms, people hear certain words and they get really worked up and upset because they have this system and their way that they've been taught to think. And, and, and here's the thing. The Bible, the Bible isn't necessarily a formulation of somebody's systematic theology. It's God. It's God's theology to us. Okay? So I had you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to begin here. Paul here, we've been going through this in our men's Bible study, and, and it just kind of hit me this week. Paul's talking about the ministry that he has, and, and 2 Corinthians is, um, it's the most personal, if you will, of Paul's letters. He kind of bears his heart. He talks about um, the, the trials of ministry. He talks about a lot, of, a lot of the hardships of it, and he says this in verse 3, if, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I want you to catch the language that Paul uses there in connection with the gospel. What, is he, what does he tell us the gospel is there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4? What is he literally saying it is? Hmm? You know, the veil's pulled off so that we can see the gospel. What, what does he call the gospel? Light, and what is that light? What is the source of that light? It's the glory of God. Do you understand this morning that when we talk about the gospel, when you and I are sharing the gospel, when we, when we are responding to the gospel, it is the glory of God. Just as much as Moses saw the glory of God, that's what the gospel is. He continues on, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, so just get it out of your mind, throw it out of your mind right now that the gospel is just the ABCs of salvation. How many of you are going to be working in VBS in about a month and a half or so? How many of you are going to be working in VBS? Many of you are going to be. You're going to be sharing the glory of God with these kids. Now, does that change the way we approach that? It ought to. It ought to. Every day when you wake up, you, you ought to remind yourself, God decided, chose to show me his glory in the gospel. That's an amazing thought, and it's not something we can trifle with. Paul later on refers to it as a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. He talks about this mystery, and, and, and he, he uses language that kind of like, oh, what, what's going on here? But, but let's understand something here. The gospel, there's, there's big parts of it that we can understand, but there's parts of it that, that are so glorious, I don't think we're going to ever comprehend on this side of eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, in fact, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, because this is how Paul unfolds the gospel to the Ephesian believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and now he's going to start delineating those, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
all that God is doing for us is displaying his glory. We celebrated Easter last week. We don't tend to think of the crucifixion of Christ being very glorious, but when you consider what happens there, God displays himself in a way that you and I really should have a hard time comprehending. Here God, here God turns his back on his son, God, God the Son, and, and, he, and he pours out his wrath on him and judges sin on, on the Savior. You say, that doesn't sound very glorious. Well, what it accomplishes is really glorious, isn't it? And so now as we, as we consider what we're talking about this morning, I would encourage you, even though some of these things are hard to make sense of, let your mind do the hard work to try to, uh, try to understand what God's saying here. Let your mind go through those exercises. We've been looking at Romans chapter 8. And I want to go back to Romans chapter 8 this morning. <clears throat> Remember, this, the context is verse, we use verse 28, that God's working all things together for good, okay? And, and, but you've got to keep going. He says, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the gospel from God's point of view. This is the gospel from God's point of view, and, and we have to put it in terms of time. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at verse 29, we talk about eternity past when God foreknew and he predestined, okay? We talk about eternity present in, in verse 30 where God calls, okay? And then we talk and justifies in the present, and then we talk about eternity future at the end where he's glorifying. Here's the thing between, the difference between God and us. When God looks at this, does God see this as a timeline? How does God see this? How does he see it? I know it's kind of hard because we're trying to, you know, but, but how, does God, how does God look at this? He, he sees the beginning from the end. He sees this as one continuous thing. Okay? He sees this. So when he sees you, even before, even before he gives you the faith to trust in Christ as your Savior, he sees you as glorified because he's accomplished it already in his mind. Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Kind of blows your mind. So what we're looking at here is, is these words that Paul used. We spent two weeks ago really unpacking the idea of being foreknown. That means that God chose to set his love. Okay, that's what it means to be foreknown. That God chose to set his love on, on individuals. Now we look at the second word there in verse 29. Those who he chose to set his love on, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination is, is one of those words that as soon as you say it, people are like, oh no, I can't believe he's going to talk about this. Let's understand what the word predestination really means. It means that the destination was determined before the journey ever began. The destination was determined long before the journey ever began. And what's the destination here that, that Paul specifically says? He has, he has programmed the GPS, if you want to put it that way, that, that those whom he's foreknown are going to be what? What's the Bible say? They're going to come out looking like Jesus. 
okay? That, that's what, what he's determined. Go over with me to Ephesians chapter 1, okay? And it, and it, Paul, again, he, he puts a different slant on this, but it's, it's a good slant on this. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for what? What, what's the, what, is, what is the GPS set for there? We're the image of Christ, and how are we going to be the image of Christ? We're going to be what? We're going to be adopted as his children. Okay? Adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? Whose will, people? God's will. Okay? God's will. We're going to, we're going to talk about that here in just a second. It's really important. You start talking about predestination in the scriptures, and one of the things you'll hear is, well, it's not used very often, and so I think we misunderstand it. You can find predestination all through the Old Testament. You can find it all the way through the New Testament. A couple weeks ago, somebody in our church handed me a document and, and did an excellent job of pointing out predestination all the way in the book of Deuteronomy, all the way back in the book of Kings. You see God at work, and you see him revealed. Okay. Let's look at a couple places where, where we see it. Go with me and let's look at what Jesus says in John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, as we kind of just are landing here in John chapter 6, this is the, the, um, this is the famous, if you will, the very well-known bread of life statement where in, in there's seven I am's, and this is I am the bread of life is where we are in John chapter 6. So he says this, he says, I am the bread of life, verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see a whoever, right? You see a whoever, right? Okay, that's very similar to the whosoever wills of Scripture, correct? You see a whoever. But I said to you that have seen me, and yet, but I said to you that have seen me and do not believe, all that the Father, what? Gibbs. All that the Father gives to me will, or gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, so what is implied there then? What's implied there? Whoever will may come, but God's given some over. And, and when you look at this and you understand the original language here, Jesus isn't talking about a nebulous whoever the Father gives me. Jesus knows the whoever that the Father's given to him. It's clearly indicated there. It's clearly indicated there. You say, what do we do with that? Because, because in this passage alone right here, and I picked this passage very specifically, we have, we have both sides of that, of that track that I was talking about at the very beginning when we started here. We have, we have the whoever and we have God choosing. It's like, well, well, we got to make sense of that. Well, yeah, we do. We do to an extent. So let's talk about the will of man. Let's talk about the will of man. The Bible in Romans chapter 6 describes unregenerate man how? That's an assignment if you don't know. You need to be looking at Romans 6 right now. How does the Bible describe unregenerate man in Romans chapter 6? Let me help you. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 3, if we're building up to it, what does is, what is 
God tell us in Romans chapter 3 about man? Is man able to please God according to Romans chapter 3? Can man produce righteousness according to Romans chapter 3? No, man cannot produce righteousness, okay? So um, let's see. Let me give you, um, just look at verses 15, 16, and 17 and tell me how the Bible describes unregenerate man. Helping you be students of the word here, people. How are, how are unbelievers described? Slaves to sin. Okay, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? Hmm? It's your master, okay? And, and who does the controlling? Sin does the controlling. Is that a true statement? Okay, we're slaves to sin, okay? One of the great theologians, one of the great American theologians of a long time ago, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a lot about the will of man. And he called it this, and I like what he, I like what he wrote, I like the way he describes this. He calls it mind choosing. And what he says is the mind is directly involved in our moral decisions. It's kind of like the biblical idea of conscience, okay? Okay? All of us are born with a conscience, Okay? And, and, and the conscience gets involved in how we make decisions, correct? If you have no conscience, guess what? You're going to make some really awful, poor decisions, right? Okay? Or if your conscience is, has been trained the wrong way. Jonathan Edwards said this, and based on Scripture, he said, unregenerate and regenerate man will choose based on their strongest desires. Is that a true statement? Unless you are coerced, you're going to make choices based on your strongest desires. Okay? Anybody here being forced to do the job you have to do if you're employed? Are you being forced to do it? How many of you chose the vocation that you're working in? I'm probably the closest person in here that can say I didn't choose. It's a calling, right? Okay? So, so you chose to do what you want to do because it, it, either the desire for money, maybe you hate your job but you like the, what you're getting paid, <laughs> okay? You, you followed your desires, correct? Okay. So we choose based on our strongest desires, okay? There's all kinds of passages that talk about God choosing, and there's all kinds of passages that talk about whosoever will. Let's look at some biblical commands that, that clearly involve choice. John chapter 5. Let's go to John chapter 5. I want you to see Jesus telling people that they've got to make a choice. John 5, verse 39 says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come. What's implied there? You're searching the scriptures and you're what? You're choosing what? You're choosing not to, to follow the scriptures. Okay? Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul here at the beginning, after, after giving the, 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 the theme of the book in, in verses 16 and 17, the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation, 
and, and in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He says this in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Stop there. Okay. Take yourself before you came to Christ. Take the average person out in the world. What is that saying about them right now? What is it saying? God has revealed, right? It says in verse 18, he's re- the wrath of God, okay, the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Is that seen in the world today? He's saying it's seen. It can be, you can notice it. And he says in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Is that a true statement? Give me some examples that what can be known about God is plain to, to even unregenerate people. Give me some help with that so that we're all on the same track here. How, how has God revealed himself? Creation. Psalm 19. Heavens declare the glory of God, right? How else has God revealed himself? Created them male and female. How else? What? Okay. Okay. Okay, he put eternity in our heart. Okay, so, so God can be understood, correct? God can be understood. Even, even somebody on a remote island that, where they never got a copy of God's word, because that's one of the arguments you hear, can, can, can God be clearly seen? Yes, okay. Keep going, verse 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. Do you see what man is doing there? You see what Paul is saying, what man is doing? Man is making a what? Man's making a choice, right? Man is clearly making a choice, and he's making a choice based on his what? His strongest desires. And his strongest desires are never, are never towards God. Okay? So, when you think about that, then go to Romans chapter 10. If you're familiar at all with Romans 10, verse 13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there a choice involved there? There is, isn't there? What's interesting is, and and what helps to, 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 to explain the dichotomy between Romans 1 and Romans 10 is all the rest of the book of Romans, right? How how can a man get to the point where he can call on the name of the Lord? Okay? So one of the objections to the idea of God foreknowing and God predestinating is is that it takes man out of the equation. No, it leaves man in the equation. Man still has responsibility, does he not? But here's the reality of man. Man is a slave to sin by nature. So he's never going to choose God left to himself. How many of you have young children? How many of you are amazed? How many, can I just be really blunt? How many of you are amazed at how stupid young kids can be? You tell them no, and what do they do? What do they do? 
They do exactly what you tell them not to do, right? And you, you think to yourself, you are dumb. You think to yourself, today's the day you want to die, right? Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because that's their nature. That's their nature. Okay? That, that's, that's who they are. Which is why, which is why we need to be so busy sharing the gospel. Now, that may seem really foreign to some of you for me to say that. If God's doing the choosing, why do we need to share the gospel? Because one, we're commanded to, and number two, it's the only hope. One of the men in church history who was one of the strongest believers in the doctrine of election was C.H. Spurgeon. He believed strongly in it, preached it strongly. He also believed strongly in evangelism, too. His, his tabernacle there in London was full Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And he preached very evangelistically. Have you ever read any of Spurgeon's sermons? He preached very evangelistically. He said this, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around London lifting the shirt tails of every Londoner. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and when whatsoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. Because you know what? We're called to make disciples. The first step in making disciples is evangelizing them, right? that they would come to know Christ as Savior. I've witnessed to a lot of people who, who, who sat there and they like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, no, I don't think so. And they're like, but you were so in agreement with this. And then I've witnessed to a lot of people over the years who have been like, no, no, just stop. Don't talk about this. And, and, and then, you know, then, you know, then all of a sudden God intervenes. And you find out later on this person you haven't seen in a couple of years. They are, they are an on-fire believer following Christ closely. Because here's the thing. We tend to think it's in our ability to share the gospel that will get people saved, don't we? There's not one person in this room has the ability to get somebody saved. But you all have the ability, I have the ability to share the gospel. And in many ways, that frees us, people. Do you understand that? That frees us. All we're called to do, remember, is, is, just, to, is just to share it. Are we responsible for the outcome? No, we're not. We're not. So... So God foreknows, he sets his love on, he predestines. He also says this, that he's not willing that any would perish. Is that a true statement? Yeah. Yeah. But if you take that too far, you'll take it to the extreme, and, and before you know it, at the end of that extreme, you'll be like, well, everybody in the world is going to be saved. Is that a true statement? No. No. So what has to happen? If God's not willing that any in the world would perish, that puts an onus on us as those who are his ambassadors, right? Okay, if, if, if we are, and we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're called to be ambassadors, right? 
Okay? We're called to represent Christ. We, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is not willing that any would perish. Then, then, then we had better be involved in doing what as his ambassadors? We had better be busy issuing the call, right? And we issue a general call, if you will, in evangelism. Because we can't do the saving, right? All we can do is the informing. Okay? God does the work. And let me give you an example, a couple examples of this. We already read in John chapter 6, Jesus said this, No one comes to the Father unless the Father does what? Draws them. Okay? Let me give you an example of this in the Scripture. Let me give you a person that you can look at that, that's recorded for us. And I'm going to give you two. Look at, with me at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So this is Paul. And in verse 11, it says this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sam Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the town of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Okay is a worshiper of God, a regenerate soul. No, this is a person who shows up to worship, okay? She, she, is, she has been exposed probably to some, some Jewish ladies, and she is practicing Judaism at this point, okay? He, because it's a Sabbath day. Remember, Paul, whenever he went anywhere, if there was a synagogue, where would Paul go on the Sabbath? He'd show up at the synagogue, and he would open up the Old Testament, and he would preach the gospel of the Old Testament, Right? There's not a synagogue here, so what's he do? He goes, the next best thing. Well, there's a group of devout Jewish women or people who are practicing Judaism. I'm going to show up there, and I'm going to talk with them, right? Okay, so as he's talking with them, now catch what happens here. Who is a worshiper of God, the, let me just read it the way we sometimes want to read it. Paul, in his persuasiveness, opened her heart to pay attention. What's your Bible say? God opened her heart. I find that so freeing. Some of us find that so troubling. But I find that so freeing, and here's why. I don't have to come up with the right words. I don't have to come up with the right method. I don't have to read the latest book on evangelism from Christian bookstores that don't even exist anymore. I don't have to do any of that. All I have to do is what? I just gotta share the truth, right? And I pray, like anything, that, that God will do that, but, but I can't control what God's going to do. Let me give you another example, one that we just preached through a couple weeks ago. Go to Luke chapter 19. So remember, Luke chapter 19, Jesus is really close to Jerusalem for the final time, going to Jerusalem. Verse, verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, okay? He's seeking to see who Jesus was. We look at that, and it's like, he's seeking salvation. That's not what this word says. What is he doing? He just wants to know who Jesus is, okay? He's heard a lot about this guy. 
He wants to, he, he's no different than anybody else probably that day in Jericho in this regard. He just wants to see the phenomenon that is Jesus. Okay? But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he's about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down, or hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Who did the initiating here? Who did the initiating? What do we know from the rest of the story? What happened to Zacchaeus that day? Because of Zacchaeus' response, because he's, he's making restitution all these things, we know that his heart got changed, right? Okay. Who, who did the initiating there? It was Jesus. Okay. We could go to passage after passage after passage. For instance, um, Colossians. You don't have to turn there. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which you were called. <laughs> You're called. This idea of calling is throughout all of the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we're called out of darkness into his light. Who's doing the calling? Do we call ourselves? Does someone call us? Or is it God calling us? It's God calling us. And that's really important because here's the thing. If it's up to you and I and call, up to you and I to do the call, how do we know we're going to call hard enough or call the right way? Right? You ever been to a church service where at the end of the service, a guy preaches this great message about the gospel and then spends 15 minutes trying to get somebody to come down the aisle? You ever done that? I hate that, and here's why. That guy really believes it's up to him to get people to come to Christ. And that's, that's, a, that's a chain, man. That will enslave you. Here's the thing that I know to be true, because I've experienced it over and over. You preach the word, you proclaim it, it may not happen in that moment, but, but for those that God is truly working in their hearts, they will come and they will talk to you, or they will find someone that can explain to them the way, and they will come to faith in Christ, not because of anything that you've manipulated them to do, it's because of what the Spirit of God's doing in them. So, back to Romans chapter 8, this glory of salvation continues on. So those whom he predestinated, he called, those whom he called, he also justified. Justified. This is really important that we understand what justification is. It's a judicial act whereby God acquits the recipient of a divine verdict of condemnation and declares them to be righteous. Let me say that again. That's kind of the, if you will, the big legalese term and, and definition. It's a judicial act whereby God acquits. What's it mean to acquit? We just had a huge trial in Columbus this past week that wrapped up, right? William Husel was, the doctor was acquitted. What does that mean? found not guilty. Can he stand trial for that again? No, he's been found not guilty, right? Okay, not getting into the ins and outs, whether you agree with it or not. What I'm just saying is, can, that guy has been declared not guilty. Can he be brought up on trial on those charges again? No, okay. So, so justification is a judicial act whereby God acquits the recipient of divine verdict of condemnation. How many of us have re received a divine verdict of condemnation? We're all condemned, right? 
We're all condemned. We're all under God's condemnation. And he declares, not only do we just get declared innocent, we're also declared righteous. You have to understand, justification is really weak if you, all you're saying is that God declares you innocent. No, God does more than that. He doesn't just declare you innocent, he declares you righteous. Why is that important? Why is that important that I'm declared righteous? That you're declared righteous? Any thoughts on that? Right. Even if I'm just, if it was possible to just be just ah righteous, <laughs> no bad righteousness, no good righteousness, am I saved? I've got to have some righteousness to my account, don't I? It's the standard. That's exactly right. Hey, welcome back. Wow. You look tired. Wonder why. Oh. <laughs> I've got to have righteousness put to my account because here's what God says. He's got to see righteousness. Now, what's the basis of that righteousness? Because this is really important. There's got to be a legitimate basis for God to do this because God is just and the justifier of those who believe, those who believe that's what the scripture says, there's got to be a legitimate basis for him to declare you and me righteous. Let's look at two verses. These are really important verses. Let's go to Titus chapter three. Titus chapter three. It's, this is so important that God, what is the thing, that the bedrock that God goes to that, that declares me righteous? This is what am I holding on to, okay? So let's go, let's go to verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Okay, again, who does the initiating of salvation here according to Paul and Titus? Who does it? It's God does it, right? By the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by what? What's the basis of justification? What's God's grace? What, give me a definition of God's grace. Say it loud, somebody. Yeah. That's a, that's a simple layman's definition of grace. God giving to me something that I don't deserve, that I couldn't earn for myself, right? He just gives it to me. So, so one, one idea of the basis of, of, of justification is, is that it's God giving it. It's not me earning it, right? Okay? How can God do that in his grace? Because even God has to have, a, has to have something whereby he can issue this grace to us. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Because Romans 5 answers it. It is done by God's grace, but, but God has to have a reason to extend that grace. Romans 5 gives it to us in verse 9. What's the basis of God give, giving to us justification? Romans 5, verse 9. We're justified what? By Christ's blood. Okay? We're justified by Christ's blood. Implying what? What's, when we talk about the blood of Christ, what are we applying? His death, right? His death. The death of Christ. Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. Okay? Can I make a point here? 
It's something that, that it's like a trend, and it's been a trend for a couple decades. Even when you're taught how to do evangelism by people who really know how to do it, one of the things that's not really played up, and it really needs to be emphasized, is the unrighteousness of man. Not just that we've messed up and we need some help. Not just that, that we're not good enough, because that implies that we have some goodness to us. No, we need to be really painfully blunt with people. Lovingly painfully blunt, though. Dude, dudette, there's no righteousness in you. I have no righteousness in me. That's really bad news. And in fact, when you and I try to produce righteousness, that's even more unrighteousness, right? Self-righteousness. God hates self-righteousness. And we got to be willing to share that with people because unless we share that, then, then we are kind of neutering this doctrine of justification. Justification is so beautiful. It's so glorious. We talked about the glory of this, is that God would choose in Christ, through the death of Christ, to take his righteousness and put it to my account when I don't deserve it. And that ought to just blow our minds. That ought to just blow our minds that he would do that. Continue on. Go down to verses um, 16 and 17. This is solely, solely, solely the work of Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the rest or the result of that one man's sin, but the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Who's the one who provided the free gift, church? Jesus. Jesus did it. It's the work of Christ that accomplishes this. It's not our work. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, right? Death reigns through Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you realize that, that you could take just Romans 5.17 and just explain that to somebody and you don't even have to go to any other verse of scripture really <laughs> to, to, to explain to somebody their situation. Because of Adam, death is reigning and sin is reigning in all of us, but, but because of God's grace and, and the death of Christ, we have the ability to be ruled and reigned by Christ. What seals the deal of this? What, what, what's the one thing, the one act that seals it all together? So, so it's by God's grace, it's through the death of Christ, but what's the one thing that guarantees that seals the whole thing? What's the one piece that we still have to have with this in this justification? Go back to Romans chapter 4 and look at the last verse. He's talking about Abraham. If you want to get into it, verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was what? Raised for our justification. It's by God's grace, it's through the death of Christ, and it's sealed by the resurrection of Christ. 
That's why resurrection is so important. It makes justification effective. If Christ isn't powerful over death, then guess what? He's no different than anybody else who's died as a martyr. Right? He's no different. He has no power to justify. But because he's resurrected, he has the power to justify. He has the authority to justify. Now, I want to share with you briefly, in the time that we have left, let me just give you an outline. We're going to talk about glorification next week, and we're going to talk about sharing the gospel in depth next week, okay? But, but I want to talk to you about the blessings of just, justification, okay? Real quick, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How long are you justified for, church? How long are you justified for? Forever. Okay, there's no more condemnation for those who are justified. Go down to verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, again, death and resurrection, okay, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How long are you justified for? You're justified forever. You don't have to worry about your justification. You don't have to go to bed at night and pray, God, keep justifying me. No, you're declared righteous one time and one time is good for all. Okay? We're forever justified. And, and there is this idea of we have this imputed righteousness. Okay? In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 8, it makes, Paul makes this statement about Jesus, who being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, okay? What Paul there is saying in short words is this, is that Christ lived a perfectly obedient life from beginning to end, even to the point of death. That's so important, right? Because he has to be righteous in his death, okay? That righteousness is put to our account. It's what we call imputed. Look with me at, um, well, I'm trying to pick which one I want. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 in verse 20. We already read a little bit of this. But he said, talking about Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed. His faith, okay? Where did he get that faith, church? Did Abra would Ab was Abraham just the most amazing man, different from any other man who walked this face, the face of this earth? Where did he get that faith? God gave him that faith, Right? It began when he approached him in Ur, and he said, what? Get up and go to the land I have for you, right? Okay. So, it, justification is, is receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ. But on top of that, because you're justified, now you and I are able to produce righteousness. You understand that? We're able now to produce righteousness. We're able now to do righteousness. Um, John chapter 15, that great passage of abiding in Christ, okay? Okay, you're only abiding in Christ if you're justified, correct? 
He says this, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Now because of justification we have the ability to produce righteousness. It's an amazing thought because we couldn't do it ever and now we have the ability to do it. We're called to do it. Philippians chapter 1 says this in verse 11. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a result of justification. Justification does one other thing, which kind of segues into where we're going to be next week. Justification assures us of, of one thing that's really important. Justification, because we're justified, we will be glorified. We will be glorified. Look at Titus chapter 3. We'll end with this verse this morning. Titus chapter 3. We read this already, but it's so good we've got to read it again. Verse 5, or verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So because we're justified, we're going to be glorified, which is also the need for evangelism, unless Unless souls are justified, they can never be glorified. Okay? Unless there's, unless there's justification, there will be no glorification. So next week we're going to talk about glorification. And, and, and glorification, another word we can tie closely with glorification is the idea of sanctification. We're going to talk about that next week. This is all what the gospel accomplishes. This is all what God does. Okay, we're still building that. Then we're going to transition over to what are we doing with this gospel that we've received? Because that's just as important now that we've received it, what we do with it. Okay, we don't just take the gospel and put it on a shelf and like, oh, I got the gospel now. Let's put it up in my trophy case over here. No, the gospel is ours to use, to leverage, to, to share. Thoughts or questions for me? We've got a couple minutes. Nothing? Correct. It's correct. And, and it goes back to what I mentioned at the very beginning. We look at this because we live in time and space. We look at this as a continuum. God looks at it totally different. He sees me just as much foreknown as glorified right now. <laughs> okay? That kind of blows our mind, right? Because none of us feel very glorified, right? But, but he sees me just as much foreknown and predestined as he does glorified right now. 
There are, there are people that you and I work with that are in our families, that, are, that we rub shoulders with, our neighbors, that, that we are like, man, there's, that person isn't a child of God. Yet, God may see them as, that person's glorified, right? And, and that's, what, that's what we have to keep in our minds, is that God has this good plan, and this plan came before the foundation of time, and he's going to accomplish his purpose, Philippians has this great both-and thing. Paul tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? That kind of scares us because we're like, well, work, works, and salvation? Yeah, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then later on he says this, but it's God who what? Works to accomplish his purpose. Okay, so is, does one supersede the other? Does one null and void the other? No, they both work together. You work it out, but God works. That totally rejects this idea then that we're total robots, that, we, that we're just here and we're, we're like little robots of God's you know, choosing and he's up, he's up in heaven playing with his little controller and like, let's see what kind of trouble I can get Dan in today. No. He's got a plan and a purpose, but I have to work it out too. It's a good question, Rick. It's a good statement. Miranda. Yeah, I, and I think, yeah, I would just, I, yeah, I'm talking, yeah, it is. I think that God, when it comes to, that's a different, that's a different, where we can go, but I think there are many things that, that we're called to do, yeah, yeah. You know, people who work in, even any job, yeah, are, they're called to that, yeah, so, yeah. I guess I was just saying it's more clearly in the scriptures that, 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 that a man who's going to be in the office of elder is called to that office. But I'm not diminishing anything else than anybody does. That's, 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 thank you. I needed that humbling. <laughs> anything else? All right, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the glory of the gospel. I pray that if nothing else, we leave here amazed that, that you in your holiness and your grace and your mercy would do what you have done and accomplish in us. We, we are so grateful and thankful and unworthy. And I pray that our lives would reflect our gratitude as we live out the glory of the gospel each day. In Christ's name, amen.